Hello, everyone. Welcome to Meet the Author podcast, sponsored by the Network for Research into Chinese Education Mobilities. I'm Dr. Cora Xu, founder and director of the network and host of this Meet the Author podcast. In episode nine, we are delighted to have Dr. Adam Paul to discuss his latest book, International School Teachers. Lived experiences with Palgrave Macmillan. Okay, right. So,、uh, thank you very much, Adam, for joining the Network for Research into Chinese Education Mobilities Meet the Author podcast.、Um, can you briefly introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So, my name is Adam Poole, and I'm currently the director of research in、um, the Institute of Impact Studies. Which is part of Beijing Foreign Studies University. So my my position is basically overseeing、uh, research in international schools and also helping out with some teacher training and also doing some support for teacher research. Hmm, sounds very interesting. Yeah, and、uh, today our main purpose is really to talk about your、uh, upcoming forthcoming book、uh, with Palgrave Macmillan on international school teachers in China. So, can you tell us a bit about what motivated you to conduct this piece of research? Yeah, so、um, it's kind of a bit of a long story. So I have to go back to when I first came to China. So I came to China in two thousand and eight, and originally I was going to stay for one year. So I went to a place called Nanchang in Jiangxi Province, and I taught English in the university. So I ended up staying for two years, and then I decided, okay, I, I like China, I like teaching. I'm going to move to Shanghai and teach in the international school. So at that point, I had a master's degree, but I didn't have any teaching qualifications. But I managed to get this position in an international school in Shanghai, and I got some experience teaching the, you know, the IB、uh, diploma. And then from there, I just basically moved from international school to international school. Along the way, I did a PGCE, and then eventually,、um, after teaching in international schools in Shanghai for about seven or eight years, I decided, okay, I'm, I'm very interested in knowing about why is it that people like me end up in schools like this? Because I was meeting some very unconventional—I use the word unconventional—kind of teachers. So these were people who didn't qualify as teachers. In、um, say the UK,、uh, but they ended up in China, and I was intrigued as to how is it that we all end up in this position, and and just very interested in knowing about their their lived experiences. So basically,、um, that was sort of the motivation in terms of actually the book and everything. So I did my doctorate, and that was looking at international school teachers and their、um, their their identities. And what I found from doing the research, what was more interesting was not so much about their identities, but their their kind of histories and their stories and their mobilities. And then that became the basis for the book.、Um, and as a result of doing the doctorate, I read a lot of literature, and I, I, I was kind of surprised to find there wasn't really anything on teachers. There's a lot of stuff on like types of international schools, the history of international schooling. Students like third culture kids, and I was really shocked to find that there wasn't really anything on teachers, and the stuff that there was on teachers was very outdated, and also a little bit, I would say, maybe a bit too simplistic because it's all about very much about developing typologies and labels, 
So like calling teachers like a type A teacher, a type B teacher, a type C teacher. And then I was using my own lived experience as a teacher and thinking, I don't see myself or my colleagues in any of these labels or identities. And that really became a big motivation and inspiration for the book was to sort of capture that reality of what it's like to really be a teacher in a school in China. Yes, yes. And I, so in, in a sense, this is almost like a semi-autobiographical sort of motivation, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. and that's an interesting thing. So when I wrote the doctorate, it was very much, I had my mind set on a very sort of objective um, kind of narrative. And in the back of your mind, I, I, I guess you know this from your experience, you're always thinking of the examiner. And like, mm -hmm. I have to give them what they want. I have to write in a certain way. So I kind of like phased myself out of the doctorate. Mm -hmm. And then when I um, picked up the pieces again for my book, I actually decided, yeah, I really want to put myself back into this narrative. Mm -hmm. yeah, and then you're right, there is a sort of semi-autobiographical aspect to it. And mm -hmm. I think that was one of the liberating things about writing a book was that I could sort of break some of the rules you know, and, and I was still, obviously with the doctorate, I was thinking very much in terms of, you know, being a little bit more objective, being a bit distant, trying to mm. reduce the amount of times so I used I and everything. Whereas mm. for the book, it was very different. And um, That's fascinating. And that's something that we will discuss uh, in greater depth soon. Yeah. yeah. So indeed, actually, I think you have already uh, given us a, a sneak uh, a, a sort of preview of, of the, the key motivations or some of the key messages. But I still want to, you know, give you an uh, opportunity to think about or to talk about the key findings or messages that you want to convey through your book. Yeah. So the main thing that I found, so I, just to say a little bit more about the, the um, context is I actually looked at four teachers and that's like a very small sample. But like I said, I was very much interested in depth and not breadth. Mm. So I, I really, and I actually stayed with these teachers for about four or five years. So even after I submitted the doctorate, I stayed in contact with them. I got new interview data for the book and it was actually a case of going very, very deep. Mm. So what I, what I found with these four teachers is that I was interested in mapping the sort of different dimensions of lived experience. And that was very much about trying to get beyond those reductive labels and trying to look at the uh, the kind of nuance of, of the actual experience. So I kind of, I, from the interviews and from our conversations and my own experiences, I identified what I call like three dimensions of lived experience. So one was the intercultural, the other mm. was the various, and the other was the resilient. So I'll talk about each one of those. So in terms of the intercultural, I think this one's been written about the most in relation to international school teachers is about the adaptations that you make. Obviously being in China, it's a very different country. Um, a lot of the participants such as myself from the UK, some from France, South Africa. And um, often it, it's about um, the ideal of, of the intercultural is adapting, is basically having that kind of synthesis of like, you know, your views and then the views and then you somehow create this third space or something like that. And that's very much like what I had in mind when I went into the book and everything. But what I found was it was kind of the opposite. For some teachers, there's actually a failure to acculturate. And what happens is essentially they have these kind of frames of reference. And um, those frames of reference are often so how should we say, so they're contradicted so much 
by the reality because we're, we're talking about Chinese internationalized schools. So these are not like international schools. So traditional international schools are very diverse and actually essentially they're very Western in nature. When we talk about Chinese internationalized schools, we're talking about schools which are probably international in curriculum only, but for all intents and purposes, they are basically, I don't, if I use the word Chinese, that, that's a little too simplistic, but um, there, there's you know, definitely a more monocultural environment because most of the students are Chinese, most of the faculty are Chinese. So what I found with some of the, um, the um, expats that I interviewed was that rather than actually adapting, they would basically fall back very, very heavily on their, I guess you could call it ethnocentric thinking. And it's because they had an idea of what international education should be. And they equated that with diversity, with a traditional international school. And obviously what they found in the, uh, in the Chinese internationalized school was very different. And so actually it was the opposite. In, in terms of the intercultural, it was basically them using their, how do we put it, using their maybe negative stereotyping, because that's what it basically amounted to. Is uh, it's referred to as um, as kind of cultural chauvinism, mm. and actually, it become, for them, it became almost like a form of defense, a form of armor, because mm. their their actual identities were very much under threat or perceived to be under threat, mm. um, because they came in with very fixed ideas about how what they thought a school mm. should be and what a teacher's role should be, and it was very different. So what I found was interesting enough that for those teachers. They could not adapt, and the experience just led to the, re the retrenchment, basically, of stereotyping, stereotypical thinking. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also another participant called Sophie, and um, she adapted completely because she, she actually was very receptive and positive to China, and she kind of understood the rules of the game. So there's very much like the idea of Bourdieu and sort of like field and the idea of games and rules. And like for the other two, uh, participants, um, Tyrant and Robert, and mm. they just didn't understand the rules of the game, whereas mm. Sophie she understood the whole idea and she could speak Chinese, so mm. she was able to adapt um, very well to that. Um, Do you think there's a gender aspect to it? That's, that's actually a very interesting point. So obviously my sample is so small mm. that it's very hard to make a, a sort of definite uh, conclusion, but actually when you mention that it is true because the two male uh, participants both were characterized by that kind of cultural chauvinistic thinking and the two female participants so mm. one was Sophie from France and mm. the other was Daisy who was uh, Chinese mm. um, both very much more uh, receptive and, and Daisy was very much an example of a cultural mediator so mm. she really attempted to find a meeting point between mm. these two worlds between like the China Chinese mm. world and say like the Hmm. the western world it's very hard to not use these reductive labels when yeah talking. yeah i understand yeah, yeah. so I, actually, I think i think there is a point there that perhaps um that definitely would warrant further investigation maybe yeah. like there is a gender different difference there um hmm. but like i say uh, it suggests maybe to the next project you can uh do a, a bigger hmm. sort of a scale study and then explore the gender prop yeah. uh, potential gender influence yeah and so that, so that was the first dimension, the intercultural. Mm. And then the second one is the precarious. And that really was born from my own experiences of, of basically being on short-term contracts. 
So yeah. I think this is quite common for most international school teachers that they'll be employed on like a two or three year contract. Yeah. And um, so there's this idea of the precariat. So Guy Standing had, had this concept of, of people being on basically um, short term contracts, not really having an anchor of stability and really being in this kind of sort of existential kind of instability as he calls it. And then actually when I, before I read his work, I, I, I had a sense of like what it was like as, as international school teachers and the insecurity, but I didn't really have a term for it. So as soon as I read Guy Standing's work on the precariat, it was like two bits went together. Mm, like, yeah. Oh my God, this is it. We mm. are, we teachers are part of the precariat. And so when I look at the, the theme of the precarious, it actually, you have to move beyond simply characterizing it in the negative. And that's something I found a lot of in the literature was it's very easy to sort of equate international school teaching with a sort of negative kind of experience. But I found that, so the, the negative aspects that I found were that often teachers are on these short-term contracts. For some teachers, um, it created a lot of anxiety because you have to renegotiate that contract. So if you have good guanxi with the school and you know you have good connections and you know the rules of the game, it's very easy to renew that contract. And yeah. um, you have to make sure, of course, that the students like you and everything. Yeah. But for some teachers, that was very, they were very anxious about that. And it almost became like one of the aspects of the precarious, precarious was about performativity. Like, am I performing as, as I should be as a teacher? Am I performing a, a version of myself that is going to be accepted by the students? And mm -hmm. that, for me, that, I thought that was a, a sort of characteristic of say, uh, UK schooling, because we talk a lot about neoliberalism and performativity in UK schooling. And then what I found is in relation to that theme is that you kind of get the same thing in Chinese internationalized schools, but um, it takes on a slightly different feature because a lot of the, um, I, I think a lot of the stress comes from the parents because these schools are for profit. Mm. So there's the idea of you've got to keep the customer satisfied mm. and that can actually cause a lot of anxiety and stress. So that was one dimension of the precarious, of the precarious. And mm. um, also found that, um, um, the stress of like moving on as well was quite difficult. So one, moving one of the- on. Moving on in yeah, what sense? Moving on to another school. Um, oh. Like, you know, because one of the participants called Ty Run, his story was very it's, very, it's quite emotional because he was from South Africa. And so his story is quite long. So he wanted to become an academic. He had a PhD. So he and his family relocated to Canada and he was doing a postdoc there. And then the postdoc basically fell through. And he had to, so basically he had no job. And then one of his contacts told him about a position in China. So then his family went back to South Africa. He couldn't get a job in South Africa. Okay. Uh, so he went to China. He's, and was away from his family. And then for him, so like he's in a weird bind because on the one hand, he doesn't want to be away from his family. And that also feeds into the idea of precarity because you know there's a sense of like isolation and loneliness. Uh, on the other hand, he's sort of he's on these short-term contracts as well, and he needs to be in China because he's got four kids, and they're at the age where they're starting to go to university. So he's in this situation where he's got to stay teaching in international schools uh, because that's the, the best-paying position for him, and it seems like that's that's going to work for him in terms of his situation. Um, 
So that 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 dimension there, in terms of the the sort of insecurity and unpredictability, came through. But I do want to stress that um, a better way of looking at precarity is another concept called precarious privilege. So I, I this is not a concept I came up with, but some writers called Ray uh, et al. Uh, from a paper last year, and that really captures, I think, the the kind of contradictory the contradictory nature of being an international school teacher. Because on the one hand, you are in a situation of precarity, right? Because um, you're often locked into the, the system. You can jump from school to school, but you can't really get out of it because mm -hmm. you get so used to this kind of lifestyle. And that's where the privilege comes in. Salary is very good. The holidays are excellent. Mm -hmm. um, and it's almost like you can become seduced, as it were, by mm -hmm. this lifestyle. Because imagine if you were to move back to your home country. For Tyrone, for example, he's very much, you know, in the middle class as an international school teacher. But mm. if he were to move back to South Africa, he suddenly would maybe move down. He'd become unemployed. Mm. And so that was an interesting thing, like looking at the sort of the ambivalent mm. um, nature of it, where on the one hand, it is quite stressful, quite precarious. On the other hand, the privileges mm. tend to keep people mm. out there in the schools themselves. Um, mm. that's, that's very much a sort of one side of it. It's a bit mm. negative. And mm. then the third theme is what I call the resilient. Mm. So that theme was really important and that was not there in my doctorate. So when I did the doctorate, I really focused more on the intercultural. And then through my interviewing for the book, I actually found that the narratives of surviving were not just surviving, but also thriving. Mm. So it's very interesting. So I wanted to actually add a more positive dimension. So I did, originally I was just going to have this doom and gloom narrative, right? <laughs> so it's just like the struggles mm. of being a teacher. And I thought, no, that's, you know, that's not the lived reality. The lived reality is it's difficult. But then mm. also looking at some of the strategies that the teachers have for um, developing resilience. And some of those strategies are quite interesting. I'll just mm. mention that. Yeah, that's... That's so fascinating. Um, yeah, because uh, you know, just now when you were talking about the the precarious uh, privilege, it, it made me also think about you know the sort of racial hierarchy, the global sort of. Um, I mean, are your are your participants all white? White people speaking English as their native language? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah no, actually, no. That's the interesting thing. Oh. Um, so. Um, Tyron was uh, Afrikaans, so uh -huh. English was his second language. Sophie mm. was French, mm. so English was her second language. Daisy mm. was Chinese, so mm. English was her second language. And Robert was originally from South Africa, and then he emigrated to New Zealand. So actually, what, interestingly enough, uh, like most of the participants are not like classic Anglo-Saxon white. Mm. And, Actually, what I found is like these schools, these Chinese internationalized schools tend to have more of a split between, say, your classic white Anglo-Saxon face, like mine, for example, mm -hmm. uh, and maybe like, um, like say, um, teachers whose uh, English was their second language. And it seemed that those schools were more willing and more receptive to hire those types of teachers, whereas mm. your traditional international school, there is mm. still a bias towards hiring British and American teachers. Ah, I see. That's that's very important because to me, I think that's very important. You know, 
um, because just now you're talking about the, the, the perks of these internationalized schools. So mm -hmm. they have like a high salary and good holidays. So these are probably not uh, easily accessible for, for let's say public schools or you know, in, in China, for instance. Yeah. And yeah. that's why I think, for, for example, for Daisy, she being in international school is actually quite great for her because she didn't have much experience. So I, I found that with these schools, it is possible, like in my own case, I didn't have much experience, but I could use that as a sort of like piggyback to something mm. else. Mm -hmm. And that, that's the thing about these schools. So what I also wanted to do with the book is to actually try to move beyond labeling them as inferior international schools which is that's how they're portrayed often they're mm. described in terms mm. of like non-traditional or underbelly and, mm. and things like that and actually what i'm trying what i try to do is actually understand them on their own terms mm. and what i found interestingly was that ethnic capital so that would be an individual's embodiment of say mm. the an imaginary of western whiteness mm -hmm. um, is actually far more important for these types of schools and the clientele, which would be middle-class aspirant Chinese families, than mm. perhaps professional capital. So a bit mm. professional capital, I mean like teaching qualifications. So mm. basically most of the teachers in the case study school that I investigated, and I worked in as well, so that's an interesting thing, I actually worked mm. for the school. They mm. didn't have teaching qualifications. Mm. And, but they're, they're not to say they weren't good teachers, they were all mm. fine teachers. But that, mm. that's the point, is that in mm. these schools, it's, it's their actually embodiment and performance of an ideal mm. um, that was actually more important. And that, that can get very frustrating. I know myself as a teacher, mm. and which is one of the reasons why I left teaching, actually, because mm. you, you often felt that, you know, I had like, you know, my PGCE, I had a lot of teaching experience, and often you felt that maybe that wasn't really what was important. What was important mm. was that you represented an international dimension. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's a bit of a devil's bargain. It's like, okay, I, you know, for these for these advantages I'm going to get, mm. I enter into this kind of bargain that I will mm. be essentially objectified. But, yeah. for the, but at the same time, it's like a double exploitation because actually expatriate teachers get paid way more money than local teachers. So Daisy was paid less, you mean? Yes, much better. So Daisy was, yeah, so for Daisy, I think her thinking was very strategic. So she was like, I don't have much teaching experience and this position is going to exploit me and I know it, but I need to get that experience to be able to move on to something else. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't ask a salary. I never spoke about money. It's one of those things that, <laughs> uh, you, you know, but there was a, a tacit understanding that the expatriates were on a higher salary. Yes. Uh, and that caused a lot of friction. Mm. Um, so mm. it, that, that comes back to the precarious privilege again, mm. the mm. idea that your, your identity is often under threat as a mm. professional educator if you perceive yourself that way, but then there's also the advantages. So it's a yes. very, and, that, and that's why I wanted to move beyond these labels, like calling a teacher, for example, some of the labels were quite funny, they call teachers like mavericks, mm. that's one label that's been used, like a, a mm. maverick is like a teacher who is a bit wild and unpredictable and like has left their home country just to sort of like travel around and be like an adventurer. And, and mm. this, there's more to it than that. <laughs> I see. That's why you explore the uh, idea of resilience. 
Yeah, and that, so that's the thing is um, like what it, despite the fact that people have this quite difficult experience, what is it that keeps them in the field, in the arena of internationalized schooling? Mm. And that there is a big distinction between internationalized and international. So I'm talking about the internationalized, mm -hmm. so these, these private for-profit bilingual schools. And some of the strategies were quite interesting. So um, for Tyrone, for example, talked a lot about fitness. And this is something that you think wouldn't be important because you know, you're know you thinking in terms of high concepts. So maybe you know, you're thinking in terms of classic resilience, which is like bouncing back and stuff. But he talked a lot about saying, I have control of my diet. He said, if I can have control of my diet, I can have control over my school life as well. Mm. So it's and that was interesting. It's almost like suggesting that they felt that they had no, didn't have any control of what went on in school. And that was just something they had to accept. But what they could control was some stuff outside of school. And that mm. became actually really important for surviving. So someone like Tyrone, like controlling his diet, actually helped him stay, stay on the tracks. And actually, you know, I think most people who've taught in international schools would have met some teachers who have derailed at some point. Mm. And there were, there were some teachers in the school, like the, where I got the data from, who left. There were many teachers who left. Some like left in the middle of the night. They just packed their bags and didn't wow. run out. Yeah. Some teachers, yeah, they just let. And because it comes back to that that issue of your self perception, mm. and then the reality, which is you know your value for your ethnic capital, perhaps. And mm. those teachers who could accept that reality did very well. Those teachers who couldn't obviously just i guess fled and that and actually fleeing becomes a strategy that is mm. a form of resilience but in a way it's not dealing with the actual situation it's just mm. sort of deferring it and one mm. robert for example he he did a lot of fleeing so he kept moving from school to school like almost mm. every year he would mm. change from because he wouldn't budge he just would mm. not budge he said I, this is who i am as a teacher mm. this is what international school teaching is and this is how it's got to be. So obviously when he went, started working at internationalized school, it's more monological, monocultural. And that's not a critique, that's just the reality, right? That is how these schools are. And you have to accept that, I think. Mm. And so one way for him to survive was basically just to move on and move mm. on and move on. Mm. <laughs> and his, his situation was quite hard because he was approaching retirement age as well. Uh. Mm. So he couldn't keep doing that. So he ended, up, he ended up just going back to New Zealand. Mm. Yeah. So fascinating. <laughs> I, I really want to read the book. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's fascinating. So when you were conducting this piece of research, I mean, both during a PhD or after, uh, was there any interesting anecdotes that you could share? Yeah, you know, I thought about this question so much for the last mm. like three or four days. Mm. I was like, and. I can't actually think of anything specifically for the book, but definitely for the doctorate. Um, mm. So actually originally with my doctorate, I was going to do a very different study. I was actually mm. going to look at something called funds of knowledge, mm. um, which is basically a, a, a sort of approach to um, helping marginalized students and accepting their knowledges and their experiences as equal to the kind of knowledge you get in the classroom. So originally I was going to do my, my thesis on that, but there were some issues. It didn't happen because it was a little bit sensitive because it was going to be on some like ethnic minorities. 
groups and it just didn't work out in the school. So basically there was a moment during my doctorate where the whole thing fell through. And I, and I was like, oh my God, I have to quit my doctorate. And I, you know, I didn't know what to do. And then my supervisor, Bob Adamson, really wonderful guy, I went to him and said, Bob, what am I going to do? <laughs> like, my, I can't do funds of knowledge now. It, it's over. And I was so depressed. And Bob just like, very coolly was just like, what are you interested in? And I was like, oh, you know, I'm interested in being a teacher. You know, what, what's the identities of teachers? And he's like, well, that's a good idea. I think you should go with that. And, I was like, and then literally from that little seed grew the, my, uh, my project. So actually, it's very interesting how like the, the project, in fact, it's very serendipitous because I feel that if I had done the Funds of Knowledge project, I wouldn't have written this book. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't now be a researcher researching international schooling. I'd be a researcher researching Funds of Knowledge. So mm. actually, I feel that in a way that was a good thing that happened and very sort of unexpected, but with a very positive mm. outcome. So mm. um, I ended up writing mm. the book because I couldn't do the project I wanted to do. That's, that's fascinating. And it also uh, shows the, the key role that your supervisor plays at that time, right? Yeah, and that's what I learned about supervisors. And like, when, if and when I become a supervisor, like, mm. you, I think every relationship is slightly different. And I mm. think with Bob Adamson, I, we got on very well because he sort of knew that I was very self-directed and mm. I had a very, I was very determined and mm. I knew what I wanted to do. And he's very much there to say, like, okay, keep, keep me on track, keep mm. me encouraged. Mm. And that really worked very well for me. And, mm. and just like, like, for example, just being very rational about it and saying, mm. what are you interested in? And it's mm. like, well, I thought it was amazing how such a small thing mm. could, could just bring the whole project together. And it was like, wow, yeah. that's someone who's very experienced. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. So, you know, many of our network members are also interested in the publication processes of a book or indeed articles, which you have both. So um, can you tell us a bit how uh, about how you went about proposing this book to Paul Greg Macmillan, for instance, and what were the highlights or challenges of getting this book published? Okay, so I feel like everything or everything about the book and my research is like a story. <laughs> so there's always like, a, it's slightly unexpected. So originally, um, I, I finished my, my doctorate and I continued teaching in international schools for about a year and a half. And I always knew I was going to move to like academia. Uh, and then, you know, there's that thing after you finish your doctorate where you say, okay, I need to turn it into a book now. So uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't get around to it. And then during the pandemic, because we we're in lockdown, um, this must have been in April, May time, around about that time, I had a lot of free time because of the lockdown. So I, I turned my mind to writing this proposal and uh, I went on to Twitter and I basically said on Twitter, uh, I'm thinking of, you know, reaching out to publishers, anyone know of any good publishers for publishing from your thesis? And then um, uh, one academic got back to me and recommended Polity Press which I think is uh, Bristol University. Yeah. He, I think he published with them and mm. he had quite a good experience. And then um, from Powell Grave, um, one of the um, editors, uh, Linda Browse, just mm. contacted me and said, oh, if you're interested, you should send your proposal to me. And she was very encouraging and positive. So I thought, okay, um, mm. I'll, I'll try Powell Grave. So originally I was going to submit what's called a pivot 
but mm. so that's like a shortened form. So it's about mm. 40 to 50,000 words. Because originally I just thought, uh, I want to do the book and I don't want to take too long over it. I just want to get that thesis into a book and move on to something else. So mm. I kind of sat down and did the pivot provo proposal. And uh, I sent it off. And then Linda, before she sent it to the reviewers, she got back to me. And she said, you know what? I think this would be better as a full-on book. Because mm. actually there's a lot of ideas you have here. Mm. And because um, originally the, the actual, the layout of the book was very different. So the mm. book that, as it stands now is, is those three dimensions. Mm. The intercultural, the precarious, the resilient. Originally that wasn't there. It was basically mm. Robert's narrative, Daisy's narrative, Tyrone's narrative, Sophie's narrative. It was very mm. much a narrative inquiry. Mm. And there wasn't really any of that, that con those concepts there. So that mm. was what I went with originally. So anyway, I, I, I developed it, sent it off, and waited and waited and waited, as you know. Actually, well, it wasn't too long. I think, it, if I remember rightly, the reviews came in quite quickly. And I was very surprised because, you know, obviously when you write your proposal, you go online and you look at all the horror stories. <laughs> you know, of like, you know, a year or something. And actually, Linda was really amazing because she kept emailing me all the time saying, oh. okay, the reviewers are just looking at your, you know, the proposal, they'll get back to you. So ultimately, the proposal came back and they said, yeah, it, it's got potential, but we want a major revision. And, you mm. know, I was okay with that. I was like, you know, mm. having published some papers before, you know, and having papers rejected, you get used to, like, having to make big changes. So at that point, and one of the reviewers said, you know, like, having your narratives the way they are, it's just not that robust. And perhaps it's not, there's not much substance there. Because one of the things I really wanted to do with the book, and that was a tension I still haven't quite resolved, is wanting to get the voices of the teachers to be mm. at the front of the book mm. and try to get the, the concepts and the theory to be at the back. Mm. And so anyway, I, I sort of thought, well, there's probably too much teacher voice here, not enough mm. theory. Mm. So I basically decided to weave the narratives together mm. across those three themes. And that actually gave the book some really strong coherence. So actually, as a result of that, I redid the proposal. Mm. And, uh, and then I, and I had to rewrite a chapter submission as well, because that didn't go down very well. Um, mm. It seems to be like the story of my life. Like the first attempt is not very good. And the second <laughs> attempt is on. So I, I find that that's just a pattern. So whenever like anything goes wrong, first of all, I'm like, it will be okay. <laughs> just keep yeah, going. Exactly. So I, Mm. Yeah, so I sent that one back and then um, the, uh, yeah, they, they gave me a contract. They said, this is wonderful. This is great. Please mm. write the book. So I actually wrote the book very quickly. It took mm. me about two or three months to write the book. Wow. And, and I pretty much wrote the book from the bottom up. I, I ditched my thesis mm. because I, I don't know about you, but when you write the thesis, you think it's the best thing in the world. And then after about mm. six months, you look at your thesis again mm. and you start mm. to scratch your head and think, Oh, it's what I could have done so much more with that. So basically, and, and I, I realized that I'd grown and changed as a researcher and my voice had changed as well. Uh, mm. I was trying to reach for a more authentic voice as a, mm. as a kind of teacher researcher. So mm. I thought, okay, I'm going to go into the book with a very liberated kind of um, mm. approach. I'm just going to write the way I want to. And that was mm. great. Then what I did is I brought in a lot of poetry. Because actually, my background isn't education, it's English literature. So mm -hmm. for like my, my undergraduate and my master's degree, I studied literature. So poet, I'm especially interested in poetry. And um, I always, 
originally that's the, the, that was my style and then I phased mm -hmm. that style out and I put the poetry back into the book it was very liberating and I really wow loved so that's fascinating so you mean in your writing you you also inserted some poetry yeah so basically in fact I, I realized that that's really what I've been doing in terms of my data analysis like whenever I analyze interviews mm. it's basically the way I would analyze a poem and that's basically discourse analysis where mm. you're actually looking at the words the words in context you're teasing out the sort mm. of the digging into the, the the sort of hidden meaning of the words the symbolic force of the words mm. and I realized that okay that that's something that's always been there so I kind of brought it all together mm. and um so that, that's why I think I could write the book very quickly and it just came together and I interviewed some of the participants again for mm. a lot of fresh data, which is really mm. amazing. And that's where the third chapter came from, the resilient mm. uh, from new interviews. Mm. Uh, and then, so the book got written and then I sent it um, back to the publisher and then within like a month or so, they sent it out for a clearance read. It, they said, great, fantastic. Now, yeah. Your book will get published so it's quite amazing i was like wow i got this book and, yeah uh, that's amazing yeah and it seems to me that the book uh, the publication itself was also quite a journey for you to like mature intellectually and as a writer right yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, it, what it taught me is that um you you have to establish your own voice and that, that's one thing that really came out of the book was the idea of voice and mm. representation and authenticity. Mm. And it's mm. not just about like when, when in the book, when I'm talking about writing, trying to get the lived experiences of teachers, it's actually realizing that your positionality as a researcher needs to be commensurate with that. You cannot mm. like stand over that kind of um, aim with a sort of objective stance. And I mm. think most qualitative researchers reject that anyway. But what, mm. it, what it taught me is that I shouldn't be ashamed. And also called for like a new kind of epistemology, which mm. is like, you know, teachers, they have certain kind of knowledge and experiences that are equal to the knowledge and that's generated by academic researchers. And, you know, mm. the point is to find some kind of meeting ground. And I think, yeah, it helped me mature anyway. I kind of moved from being a teacher and mm. being a researcher. And there was this kind of new positionality mm. between that's fascinating, fascinating. So uh, in addition to this book, I, I know that you have been publishing a lot of articles. <laughs> so uh, can you, you know, sort of talk a bit about how you navigate the publication of articles and, and a book? You know, what are the main strategies, especially for early career researchers? Yeah, so there are, there are a couple of strategies that I've developed, and I think they, they really work for me and my kind of um, my working style. So the first thing I tend to do is I tend to work on one paper, just one paper, very, very intensely. So mm. what I mean is like I will pour everything into that one paper and I will try not to work on anything else. Mm. And then usually I will spend about two or three weeks just mm. like, I almost liken it to like um, working in a mine and you're like mm. chipping away at the coal face. And it's mm. almost like my mentality is a kind of stubborn refusal. It's mm. like, I will stick at this paper, even mm. if the paper is not going where I want it to go. And mm. I will just, keep. so that, that's one tactic that works for me. So basically that is working on self-contained projects and mm. not trying to overlap too many papers. This has changed now, like before, because I was just on my own. I had no collaborators or anything. I was just literally, I had no connections. I was just a teacher writing mm. academic papers. 
And so mm. that was one that I was forced basically to adopt that kind of strategy to be able to um, to complete the project. So I guess mm. one is a stubborn refusal. Um, another is like a bit is to actually make some um, connections with other academics. Mm. So um, that can also help you write more papers and ease the burden of actually having to write so much. Mm. Because actually there is a thing that when you write a paper and it's just you, and if that paper gets rejected, it's mm. really quite painful because you've poured so much into that paper. Mm. And so I started, I, I reached out to um, a researcher called Tristan Bonnell from mm. the University of Bath. And he's like one of the um, leading researchers in international schooling. And for me, like when I, before I reached out to him, he was almost like in my mind, it sounds really strange to say this, he was kind of like on this pedestal, you know, because, you know, it's like this name I've been reading all through my doctorate, Tristan Bonnell, Tristan Bonnell, Tristan Bonnell, and his work had informed my work so much. And mm. I was really hesitant to reach out to him. And mm. one thing I do recommend to researchers, early career researchers, is don't be like me, don't be hung up. Mm. Please, because I've had actually a lot of um, PhD candidates reach out to me. And I'm always like, wow, I'm so surprised at how confident they are. And they're, they're just so open. And that's one bit of advice I would give is don't be afraid to actually mm. reach mm. out. So anyway, I reached out to Tristan Bono and I read one of his papers and I said, I have some data that mm. I think fit really well with that. Mm. Mm. And then basically since that time, we've written maybe five, six papers and co-authored a book together. Wow. As well. so, and, um, you are highly productive. You, you know that, right? You're extremely productive. Well, yeah, but that's what I mean. So like being, again, it's that kind of mentality of, I don't know, it's like chopping things off and saying that is a project mm. and that's a project and never letting them come together. But I think the mm. thing with Tristan Bono as well is that me and him have a very similar work ethic, mm. which is we, we tend to like work on something very quickly, but intensely. So mm. like, we always throw emails back to each other and like, oh, this bit, this bit. And I, I, I did collaborate with somebody else, a good friend of mine, mm. and she's very different. And that's no criticism of her, but she's, she takes a long time, a very mm. long time to do anything. Mm. And I realized that my, my tempo for working is very, very fast. So mm. I think that's another bit of advice is if you're going to collaborate with other people, it's good to find someone who actually fits your kind of working style. Totally, yeah, totally. Mm. It, it, it makes your life more enjoyable as well. Yeah, because right. it's kind of a, you don't want to like have written something and then pass it off to someone and then you're waiting two months to yeah. get the paper back. Because yeah. again, that, that's something that I like to do is I almost like to finish a project, finish a paper, and then mm. it's done. Like I've mm. done that paper, I've finished it, and then I can move on to the next thing and then mm. give myself completely to it. Mm. Um, so that, that's another thing um, is basically yeah, making networking and collaborating. Mm. And that's something that we started doing in the last year, I have to mm. say. So mm. that, that's worked quite well. Mm. And I think and another way of doing it, I think another way to make, to sort of get the big picture of, mm. of your writing is to see your, all of your papers as telling a story. Mm. Uh, and I think that's really important as well, like to actually, to sort of even when you're writing even beginning to write a paper almost think of it as a sequel or a prequel to something mm. that came before um, mm. and I, I find that very helpful for me that sometimes I'm telling a story and there's like one paper is chapter one the next paper is chapter two and there's always a kind of development that goes on and making that link that mm. also makes it if you can get that straight in your head 
then mm. I think that's more persuasive for reviewers to see mm. contributions that the paper is making. Mm, yeah. Certainly. Wow. That's, these are some really, really good tips. Yeah. Um, so um, what's your what are your next steps for, for this very fascinating project? Yeah. So in, in terms of um, the stuff covered in the book, that for me, that's like the end of that now. It's like mm. I, I'm done with that. Like it was wonderful. It's great. I, I need to leave that behind. Mm. Um, one thing that I've become very interested in as a result of my, my job is actually um, in, uh, language teacher research. So this is teachers as researchers. Mm. And so because in my position, I've, I've helped support um, teachers doing classroom research. Mm. And I've actually did publish one paper on that. So that's like a new kind of world for me because mm. I'm very much first in international schooling. And it's very interesting to step into this new world of, of of language teachers and language teachers as researchers. So that's mm. something I definitely want to develop and particularly looking at teachers' conceptions of research. Because mm. uh, what I found interestingly is that um, a lot of teachers have an idea of research, which is very grand. It's almost like scientific research. They mm. think in terms of like large samples and representativeness and this kind of thing. And classroom mm. research itself is actually very modest and it should mm. be. Mm. Uh, and actually, at the moment, I'm also designing a, a course uh, mm. as part of my job for teacher researchers. So I, I see that developing into some research. Um, mm. I'm also getting connected with like my work with like working class academic mm. research. So I just attended the conference the other day for working class academics, which you recommended to me last year, as I yeah. remember. Yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. At that point, I, I wasn't ready for it because, you know, I was mm. like, am I a working class academic? Because I am from a working class background. Mm. At least I, I self-identify as being from a working class background. Mm. And uh, for a very long time, it was something that I just, I didn't think there was any reason to acknowledge that in my research. About it, I think that's something I definitely like to investigate next. And maybe even looking at um, working class teachers in international schooling. That would be interesting. I, 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 yeah, I, I'm not aware that there's anything that's been done in, in this area. That would be I, very I interesting. It, I, I feel like there's a lot of scope there for like mobility. So the mm. idea of these Chinese internationalized schools, not mm. necessarily needing to be a qualified teacher. So there is mm. a sense of like being able to move into the glo a global middle class. So like, for example, for me, I came from a working class background mm. and worked very hard to get to university and everything. And in mm. a way, the traditional route into academia and was not really going to work for me, but these alternative mm. routes, and you can get to the same place, but you have to take the B road as it were. Mm. And I mm. think I'm very, very much interested in looking at, and also looking at the juxtaposition of the elite, the kind mm. of elite nature of international schooling and mm. how that might sit with teachers who are from a working class background. That would be a fascinating piece of research. Yeah, yeah. that would be, yeah, that sounds so exciting. <laughs> In, in, incredible. So is there anything else that you would like to share with us today before we close the interview? Um, not really. Just very happy to come on and talk about the book. Yeah. And, so uh, is there any sort of promotion uh, information about your book? Like, do you have a leaflet or do you have like promotion code? Yeah. So there is a leaflet um, which I can make available. Um, yeah. So that's basically Powergrave advertising it. Um, I have also got a, a PPT presentation, which because mm. I gave a talk about my book, 
and I think at some point I should probably record it. Um, yeah. I haven't done that yeah. yet, so that's available as well. So yeah, there is some information about. The yeah, book. yeah. So if you know, like, uh, do give this information to us so we can uh, promote the book for you as well. So thank you very much, Adam. It, it has been a great pleasure talking to you about your exciting book and your exciting project. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay. We are delighted to have this opportunity to listen to Adam about his intriguing research journey and anecdotes. We thank him for sharing valuable tips about publishing many peer-reviewed journal articles, as well as a research monograph as an early career researcher. We wish Adam all the best with developing further research projects. Thank you all.